Our text this morning comes from Job chapter 16 and 17. Job chapter 16 through 17. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do, if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I can strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge from me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think we would all agree by now that Job has been dealt with a heavy lot. And no matter where he turns, it all seems hopeless. His friends come to visit him with the original intent 
to show him sympathy and comfort. But unfortunately, they failed in this respect. In their ignorance, they only brought judgment and condemnation. After Job responded three times to their speeches, Eliphaz became impatient and responded with, Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? Well, if only their words were gentle, it would be one thing. And it didn't comfort Job, so he rejected their comfort. And so to them, this means he rejected God's comfort. Easy way to try to end an argument by claiming your words come directly from God. Who would stand a chance? But Job rejected the fact that their comfort came from God. So he responds with sarcasm. I have heard many such things. Now, this is not the first time I've heard this, and it is not from God. It is the same old moral comforts coming from some moralists. Miserable comforters are you all. The word miserable comes from the word for trouble. This was to turn the tables on Eliphaz as he suggested back in chapter 4 and 5 that Job may have sown trouble and that man is born to trouble. And the man he had in mind specifically was Job. But Job was saying his so-called wise friends were just adding to his trouble. Being miserable and being a comforter does not usually go well together. It is an oxymoron. That is like mixing oil and water or seeking relationship advice from someone who hates to be around people and rather be alone. They are living contradictions. At this point, Job had already rejected their words for food because their words were tasteless, lacking salt, and he considered them dried up with no living water to quench his thirst in a dry, hot desert of suffering. He rejected their words of comfort because their words were irrelevant and they were betrayed by their ignorance, their ignorance of his situation and how God works out redemption in and through suffering. While on a couple of occasions they accused him of being a windbag again, he turns it around on them and says, Shall windy words have an end? Windy words is speaking of someone who is long-winded, someone who has a lot to say, like his friends, but the words add no substance to the argument. Or what provokes you that you answer? Why do you keep talking and arguing with me? It is useless. You brought me no comfort in your words, having convinced me otherwise. Now, what we will see in this text is the development of Job's faith while going through suffering. But also, we will see the unavoidable parallels between Job's suffering and the life and suffering of Jesus Christ. And much like Job, this is the calling and development of the Christian disciple as we struggle with our faith, looking to God alone as our hope. Because notice how he turns it around on them again as to say, if the roles were reversed, I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. See, if you were in my shoes, I could do to you as you have done to me. I could condemn you rather than sympathize with you. Now, he's not saying that he would do what they did to him, but he is asking, do you see the hurt that you cause? By withholding comfort from a friend. Or he says, I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage or ease your pain. Through what Job has gone through listening to his friends, Job knows what not to say when trying to comfort others. 
Because what Job wanted is what every Christian disciple wants. He wanted to be comforted and to comfort others with the comfort from God, which he will receive later on. We tend to forget that as part of discipleship. We receive the comfort of God, so in turn, we would comfort others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But according to Job, comfort is not what he found so far. Because what he is saying here is, if the roles were reversed, I could either make your pain worse, or I could ease your pain with words of comfort. But based on everything that has occurred so far, and considering what great friends he has, now that's sarcasm, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? So he is saying, Based on my circumstances right now and the so-called comfort that I have received, if I speak or not speak, it doesn't matter. It is all useless. Nothing helps. It seems like no one is listening and I am receiving no comfort. So where does Job turn? Well, as it has been his pattern, Job has been going back and forth between hopelessness to hope in God throughout all of his speeches. At times it sounds blasphemous, while at other times he sounds like a little child who is left all alone in a busy theme park, crying out to his father in despair. And here I have broken up his response into three major sections. First, he says, there is no hope under God's wrath. Secondly, but God is his only advocate who can speak on his behalf and his only hope of vindication. And thirdly, he concludes that there is no hope in the words of his wise friends because they neglect the inevitable. First, there is no hope under God's wrath. He believes that he has felt the hostility of God. First, he says, surely now God has worn me out and he has made desolate all my company, meaning he has been left all alone. His family is gone. His friends might as well have never been present. And his status and reputation in society has been stripped, which means he has lost his social life. Second, and he, that is God, has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has become less than a man. He lost his wealth and his health. The Lord has lifted the hedge of protection that was around his possessions Now he has lifted the hedge of protection, which was his skin that protected his body. He has suffered physically from this skin disease to the point where he is no longer recognizable. And he is saying that this is evidence of God's displeasure with him. Third, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me like a predator. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. He is saying, God is treating him like an enemy, pouring out his wrath upon him. Fourth, he not only felt the wrath of God, but he also felt the hostility of men. Men have gaped at me with their mouth, and that is to open one's mouth in shock and wonder. They have struck me insolently on the cheek, They massed themselves together against me. These are speaking of the men who not only robbed him of his possessions, but also his friends who would later visit him with an expression of shock. He says, 
God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Fifth, I was at ease, meaning he was enjoying the blessings of God and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He used me for target practice, he was saying. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall. Think of the gallbladder on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. This was to respond to what Eliphaz said back in chapter 15, verse 26, that Job was running stubbornly against God. But Job says that it was God who was running against him like a warrior. So Job believes that he is under God's wrath and that he is God's enemy. He is an unforgiven sinner who did not have the spiritual resources nor the physical ability to fight against God's will. But is it true that Job was an enemy of God? If you consider the entire context and go back to chapters 1 and 2, he was considered a chosen seed of God. He was called by God as God's servant. Have you considered my servant, Job? Then how can all this be that a man of God would suffer this way? Well, let us consider again what he has just described. Think of it. Think of it and see if this sounds familiar to you. He was left all alone, social status stripped, shriveled down to nothing. He felt the outpouring of God's wrath. He was given into the hands of wicked men, and men gaped their mouths at him in shock and wonder. He was struck on the cheek as men gathered themselves together against him, which ought to remind you of David when he said in Psalm chapter 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Because technically Job was one of God's anointed. He was set up as a target to be slashed open and his vital organs pierced and he was broken under the wrath of God. Now, who does this sound like? Our Lord Jesus emptied and humbled himself, took on flesh, entered into a world where he had nowhere to lay his head. He would live a life of little to no social status as he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was betrayed into the hands of sinners. He was left alone to suffer after his disciples fled his side. And his own mother stood at a distance from the cross as he died. As he hung on the cross, he was stripped naked and was shriveled down to nothing, marred beyond human semblance. Men gaped their mouth at him and wagged their heads. He was abandoned by God to be mocked. He too was struck on the cheek. And the religious leaders gathered together to set themselves against Jesus. And on the cross, his body was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities, taking on the wrath of God for us. Jesus, much like Job, drank from the cup of God's wrath. All the while, he remained the Son of God. He never lost his standing in God's sight. 
He was his beloved son, yet he was also forsaken by God his Father. Now think of the Christian disciple's experience. How many of us drink from a similar cup? When James and John requested of Jesus that they sit on his right and left hand in glory, Jesus responded by asking, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That is, the cup of God's wrath? They answered, We are able. Jesus didn't say, No, you won't, because I will be drinking this cup on your behalf. Rather, he said, You will drink of this cup. Not to atone for sin, but to share in Christ's suffering. How many of us have suffered in this way? What happens when people find out what Christians are really about? It was all good when Christianity was about morals. That is, commercial Christianity, and it sells. Because people like morals, right? They'll buy morals. They believe their morals will actually save them. What happens when people find out that Christianity is not about giving wholesome moral advice, but they find out that Christianity has a supernatural message, a message outside of the efforts of man. They find out that Christianity is about how you are hopeless. You are a hopeless sinner and you are hopeless of salvation from sin and God's wrath outside the cross of Christ. It was all good when you were attractive to others because of your morals. Then they find out what you truly believe. Then you begin to notice once people understand, I don't have the same social status I used to have. I notice people who were once friends have been standing aloof. You begin to taste a little bit of the cup that Job drinks of here. You are cut off from men as if you were diseased. Many around the world are experiencing some of what Job experienced because they stay true to the message of the gospel and they wonder, why God? Why is this happening to me? Am I under God's wrath? Well, no. Actually, the truth is, you are a chosen one of God. You can be a true son or daughter of God, while at the same time, go through some of what Job goes through here. Because this is really about developing you as a disciple, so that you are left with no other choice but to turn toward God for your hope and vindication. And this is where Job would ironically turn after saying that it was all hopeless under God's wrath. Because secondly, deep down, Job in his despair knows that he is innocent. He knows he is a forgiven sinner. And because his skin was so damaged, he says, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin. Sackcloth was used in times of grief and mourning. And he says, and I have laid my strength, literally his horn, like the horn of a strong animal in the dust. Uh, Imagine a bull who has just given up the fight, how his horn would be shoved into the ground as he falls. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. In other words, he is saying, 
I am a complete and utter emotional wreck. You can tell by the look on my face and the dark circles around my eyes. I'm sobbing over the fact that I am under the wrath of God and I'm wondering why. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. He is not saying that he is sinless, but rather he is forgiven and he approaches God with a clear conscience, with clean hands and a pure heart. And since he is forgiven, he should have access to God. So he turns to his God, who is his only hope of a mediator. But first he says, O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. This is reminiscent of when Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, and the Lord said to Cain, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So he is pleading that the Lord would hear his cry for vindication because the Lord is known to avenge innocent blood. This same sort of cry is found in Revelation when the martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Because as Job continues, even now behold my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. God is described as a witness throughout the scriptures, especially Jesus and Revelation, as he is the true and faithful witness. He could say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? His only hope of an advocate or mediator who would plead his case is on high in heaven. Back in chapter 9, he said there was no arbiter or mediator. But now there is one and he identifies him. It is God himself. Because my friends are useless. They scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. This is a bit confusing when you first read it. He pleads that God would argue his case with God. It is God the attorney presenting Job's case against God the judge. Is there more than one God? No. He is basically saying since he is under the wrath of God, then God is his only hope against God. Obviously not man because they have all let him down. Who holds life and death in his hands? Job knows that he has to face the inevitable. He knows that he will die one day. And if he is under the judgment of God now that he is alive, imagine when he dies. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. The spirit is speaking of the vital part of you that desires life. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me. And my eye dwells on their provocation, speaking about his so-called wise friends. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? A, a pledge is defined as a thing that is given as a security or the fulfillment of a contract or payment of a debt. It is a covenant. It is a promise that God would take the responsibility on behalf of Job. Similar to when Hezekiah cried out to the Lord, O Lord, I am oppressed 
be my pledge of safety. But against what? Or better, against whom? Well, against God. He is asking that God would cover his debt that he owes to God. See, one of the great truths that this text reveals to us, which helps to prove the deity of Christ and the Holy Trinity, is that only God can be the true and perfect mediator for God's people. Only God can turn away God's wrath. See, this plea of Job that God would argue his case with God and lay down a pledge for him foreshadows the cross of Christ. The cross is the guarantee that that pledge was indeed fulfilled for us. At the cross, it is God the Son arguing the case of man with God the Father. What a beautiful picture of the gospel this is. There is no other hope for man. And this God-man, Jesus, continues to intercede and argue the case for his people at the right hand of God, even today. And Job's plea to God for vindication is that he would be saved from his enemies who are posing as his so-called wise friends. Though he was speaking to God, it was for his friends to listen to because this was a warning to them to reconsider their counsel. He says, since you, that is God, have closed their, his friends' hearts to understanding Therefore, you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. This is a warning that Job will one day be vindicated and his friends judged if they continue to trouble him. Also, this means that one day Satan's plans would come to nothing. Remember, his ultimate enemy who was behind his friend's words was Satan and he was trying to get him to curse God. But his plans will fail. He continues by lamenting his public humiliation all the while knowing that he will be vindicated. He has made me a byword of the peoples, much like Jesus. And I am one before whom men spit just like they spat at Jesus. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright, that is the truly righteous, are appalled at this. That is the state that Job was in, in the treatment he has received. And the innocent stirs himself against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. He still holds to the fact that one day he will be justified or vindicated before God against his accusers. Now think of how Jesus, after he was publicly humiliated, yet all the while, he knew that one day he would be vindicated. And he told his enemies, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So thirdly, There is no hope in his, quote-unquote, wise friends. He challenges them again, sarcastically, to keep it coming. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. 
They claimed to be wise, yet they were foolish. Why? Because they haven't assessed Job's situation properly. They're trying to give wise counsel while ignoring what Job is saying. He says, my days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. He is saying, they're blurring the lines. They're making light of my situation and my suffering. They're saying that my suffering isn't all that bad. How many counselors do this and pass it off as if it is from Christian conviction? No compassion, no sympathy, no comfort. Job is in a difficult situation. His friends think they know what he has been through when they don't know, and they write it off as if it is no big deal. Beloved, for us, this is a warning about cold-heartedness and lacking in sympathy and compassion. But Job is saying they are ignoring the inevitable. They thought things were always going to remain the same for them. But Job wasn't ignoring the inevitable. He knew that the end of all man was the same. So he asks, where is my hope? If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit that is the grave, you are my father and to the worm that eats my corpse, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? And notice how he says, shall we descend together into the dust. He includes them because he is warning them that everyone will die and everyone will appear before God's throne for judgment. And who can stand? Who can stand before a holy God and argue his case? Where then is our hope? Where is your hope? Where is my hope? So we concluded that first Job was seeking comfort. And he didn't receive this comfort from his friends. Because this is a comfort that can only come from God. This is a comfort that every believer longs for. So he turned to the only one who can grant that comfort. Secondly, he feels like he has been abandoned by God under his wrath. His wealth was taken. His health was taken. He was given over to wicked men. Thirdly, Job pleads with God because he knew that he was innocent. He had a clear conscience. He was confident that one day God would vindicate him or prove him to be one of his. Now this shows us the importance of approaching God with a clear conscience. This shows us the importance of confessing our sin and repenting of sin. Now, Jesus had a clear conscience because he had no sin to confess, as he said, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, that is God, his father. Now, many of us know that we are not innocent and we do not always have a clear conscience. How is it then that we stand innocent with a clear conscience before God? Are we relying on our sense experiences? 
Are we relying on our own goodness, our own good works? Well, this leads to the next point. Fourthly, although Job had a clear conscience, this didn't mean he was sinless. So he pleaded with God to intercede for him before God. He asked him to lay down a pledge for him. There is no hope without God as our mediator. Again, all that Job is going through and the fact that he approaches God to be his mediator before God foreshadows Jesus Christ. But Jesus had to become like his brothers in every way without sin because Jesus knew the longing to be comforted, especially considering when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was to be crucified, he pleaded with God, Abba, Father, Remove this cup from me. He desired comfort and he dreaded the cup of God's wrath that he was to drink from. Although he was the eternal son of God, he identified with sinners from the time of his birth to his baptism to the cross where he would be abandoned and forsaken by God. He actually experienced what it was to be under God's wrath and drank that cup for you and I. He lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to God with a perfect and clear conscience so that now he is our perfect mediator in heaven. Because we too have this longing for a heavenly comfort and there is only one place to turn. That is what it means to repent. We turn as we look in ourselves and we see all the remaining sin within us. Or as we look around at all that is going on in the world today, we must be aware that we live in a world that is under the judgment of God. The world is in misery since Adam fell. And the lack of self-awareness in light of who God is, is evidence that the world is under his judgment. Like when Job says that God has closed their hearts to understanding. And as our own bodies break down, we feel the curse of death looming over us. Every day when we wake up to life, we're also looking down the barrel of death. What hope do we have? Do we turn to our unbelieving friends? Do we turn to popular media influencers who will only give us temporary advice or moral principles to live by that will only make life bearable for now as we self-centeredly and temporarily ease our own consciences? Or do we turn to our God in heaven who alone can clean our conscience and comfort our souls, who can fill us with a heavenly hope and a heavenly confidence to approach him? And get this, our confidence is greater than Job's because we know of its fulfillment. We have hope in a mediator who died and who was raised, who has fulfilled his pledge to us on the cross. So that death is not the end of our hope. We will be raised to see exactly what we hoped for. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
Not because of what we have done and accomplished, but because of what Christ has done and accomplished for us. Through what He has done, He has made us righteous. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That, beloved, is the only way that we can have a clear conscience before God. And it guarantees that we will stand justified and vindicated before God one day. If you are struggling with that today, make your plea to God the Son that He may intercede for you before God the Father. For He is our perfect mediator and advocate. Amen.